Good morning. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 11 to chapter 12, verse 3, on page 12. Genesis 11 to chapter 12, verse 3, page 12. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make brick and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why, the, that is why it was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Akbaxad. And after he became the father of Akbaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Akbaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Akfaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And when he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Mehor. And after he became the father of Mehor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. 
And when Nahal had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahal lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahal, and Aram. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahal, and Aran. And Aran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in awe of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife is Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son, Abram, his grandson, Lot, son of Aran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, and the, the wife of, of his son, Abram. And together, they set up from all of the Chaldeans to, to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, very good morning, everyone. Thank you for reading. Um, do keep that passage open as we look at it together now. Uh, let me pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that you have the words of life. And as you sung, will you speak those words into our hearts and minds this morning? And help us to see the wonder of who you are, that you are our sovereign king. Help us to see the danger of defying you. And may we see the joy of trusting in your son. So help us as we come to your word now, Lord. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, if you're um, familiar with TV series or you're a fan of TV series, you'll know that at the end of each season, there's a season finale. And the, the final episode is usually ends with some sort of uh, dramatic uh, resolution or cliffhanger. Now, if Genesis was a TV series, 
uh, then the Tower of Babel would probably be the finale of season one. Uh, unfortunately, it is rather an anticlimax, for it is the conclusion of the many failures of primeval man. Now, at first glance, we might think, what's wrong with building a city and a tower? What's wrong with a bit of human ingenuity and endeavour? Are we not seeing the best of people when they work together? Uh, but to understand the Babel problem, we need to go back to chapter 9, verse 1, where after the flood, God commands mankind to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Babel is an outright defiant rejection of that command and ultimately of God's sovereign rule. And they do the complete opposite because they want to make a name for themselves. It's all the worst that we see in mankind. Hubris, rebellion, disobedience, autonomy. It is total rejection of God's loving, sovereign rule. And the consequence of Babel is God's judgment rightly falling upon them. And regardless of their best efforts to hinder him, the Lord fulfills his command. And that's the heart of our message this morning. Despite humanity's defiance, God accomplishes his sovereign plan. I'll say that again. Despite humanity's defiance, God accomplishes his sovereign plan. Now we're going to take a little bit, uh, look at this in a bit more detail. Um, but I want us to see uh, there's some sort of directions and movements of the passage that I think help us to see kind of what's going on. I've got two points for us. Uh, and the first is this, and you can write these down if you want. Uh, humanity's defiance brings God's judgment. Humanity's defiance brings God's judgment. Now, the sort of first direction that we have is that people go east and settle. So let's look down at verses 1 and 2. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, and settled there. Uh, some of us might be familiar, I don't know how many, uh, there's a, quite a well-known computer game series called Civilization. And uh, if you're not sure what it is, basically the premise is, is that from humble beginnings, you attempt to create a civilization that stands the test of time. But at the beginning of the game, as you start, all you have is like a, just a, a small band of settlers. Uh, and what you have to do is to try and find a place that's suitable for them to live, a nice fertile area for them to settle. Now, these verses seem to suggest that something similar is going on here. These people are just trying to find a place to live and eke out an existence. But there are a couple of details that show that something more is going on. First, there's the mention of going east. Uh, this takes us back to Genesis 3 uh, and man's banishment from the garden. The Lord places a cherubim on the east side to guard the way. And as the people move eastwards, 
in Genesis 11, there is a sort of spiritual sense that they are moving further away from God's presence. Now, the other detail to note is that mention of Shinar. Now, if we look down at our footnotes, we'll see that this is another name for Babylonia. Now, this is where the great empire, the great Babylonian empire, would emerge and would one day destroy Jerusalem and exile her people. But in the Bible, Babylon increasingly becomes a symbol of godless society that's always opposing the Lord. It even manifests itself today with its posturings and persecutions, pleasures, sins, superstitions and decadent riches. And these small details reveal that more is going on than just early progression of a civilization. We see people with rebellious hearts far removed from the presence of God. And then in verses 3 and 4, we, we hear those hearts aloud. Let's look down there, verses 3 and 4. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, there seem to be two actions here that the people are trying to do as they start this sort of construction project. The first is that they try to fortify themselves. Um, uh, Now, Mesopotamia... uh, where Shinar was situated would have been an ideal place to make bricks. The fertile plains of the Euphrates would have meant that it would offer sort of plenty of clay deposits. Uh, Now, usually they made bricks and just sort of left them out in the sun to dry. But perhaps here we have a new technology uh, that they've baked the bricks thoroughly, probably in kilns. It makes them nice and strong. But they also use bitumen. This is an organic tar-like substance that's waterproof. So these seem to be sort of strong building materials, uh, maybe the most advanced at the time. And they used the materials to build this city and tower to fortify themselves. The word for tower here in Hebrew means fortress, and it sort of emphasizes security. Uh, They're uh, building what they hope is a strong fortification. Um, Here, there's sort of no movement. I've tried to illustrate it on 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 the PowerPoint. It's sort of just staying put digging in, bedding down, not moving at all. Completely contrast to what God commands. You see, the city building project is designed to prevent population, the, the population to be scattered, to be fortified within the city walls. They fear to be scattered, not only for their safety, but also because they, they view a dispersal as a hindrance to human progression and independence from God. How can you make a name for yourself if you're spread all over the world? Uh, the f- repeated phrase that comes um, of come let in, in verses 3 and 4 is a, is a kind of corporate rally to do this work without God. The builders believe that they have no need of him. Their technology and social unity give them confidence in their own ability. They have huge aspirations constructing this tower. It will be their protection and their glory. And this brings this to the sort of second action. Not only do they seek to fortify themselves, they also seek to glorify themselves. 
And so the sort of next direction is, in our passages, is of like an arrow that's curved in on ourselves. Verse 4 again, look down there. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. In the film uh, Castaway, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, Chuck Nolan, who's played by Tom Hanks, ends up stranded on an island after his plane crashes in the sea. And trying to survive, he makes uh, many attempts to build a fire. And in one dramatic scene, he eventually manages to do so. And he's so excited that he dances around the roaring blaze and screams aloud, look what I have created. See, even without anyone around, the human heart exposes itself. It is inward-facing, only concerned for its own glory. Chuck Nolan shows us this, as does Babel. See, the people wanted a tower that reached to the heavens to glorify themselves. Now, it's doubtful that they thought that they could build a tower to heaven. It's more likely they, they thought they could build a tower as an observation point to the heavens. But it would have been an impressive landmark for all the world to see. Such a symbol of power brings influence and renown. They don't come to people, people come to them. They become the centre of the universe and they glory in themselves. Our civilizations they have tried to do this through the centuries with the building of the great wonders and landmarks of history. But even today, countries and corporations try to outdo each other uh, with the building of towering skyscrapers, colossal suspension bridges and state-of-the-art stadiums. And here we see the problem of what we might call a a corporate or collective attitude of self-glory. The glory of mankind. It's what a humanist would probably champion and fight for. It is idolising and glorifying the accomplishments of humanity. But I wonder what God thinks of such achievements. What was he thinking when man first walked on the moon. For us, it was one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what was it to God? The one who puts the great lights in the sky and also made the stars. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't congratulate or be pleased with human achievement, but the direction of that glory should not be turned back on ourselves, on us. It should be directed to God, for he is the one who enables us to do good in this world. So let us be guarded in glorifying man. But I also think we should be wary of the sort of corporate powers that clearly are defiant against God. I mentioned Babylon manifesting itself in our world today. And we see that in many ways. Um, Perhaps one example would be Disney, wouldn't it? A year ago, a Zoom call was leaked involving certain Disney employees. It quite clearly showed that the company's agenda and worldview, it was a defiant attitude towards traditional values, values that we would concur with as Christians. Now, I think their agenda is clear just watching anything that they have on their streaming service, uh, particularly more recent 
contributions. But uh, please don't hear this as a sort of, don't watch Disney rant. But rather be on your guard and allow the gospel to speak against their messaging. And that should be true of anything we watch or read or listen to. And it's very important that we help our children to see this too, because the world of cute animals and princesses and Jedi and superheroes is a very enticing one. Well, the good news of our passage is that God is not idle against such defiant powers. He comes down to judge. Let's read from verse 5. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. So God comes down to observe their construction efforts. And he concludes that Babel is like a a volatile concoction. It's like a ticking time bomb. If it goes off, it's going to spell disaster. See, at the beginning of the passage, we're told that the people have a common language. And God comes down. He sees this as a problem. Nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. If they can build something in this mutually defiant way, then their rebellious plans will know no bounds. The potential of fallen man is devastating. And so God comes down. And in a a sort of ironic echo to the builder's sort of enthusiastic exhortation to come, let's make, come, let's build, the triune God, the Godhead, in one accord rallies to descend and intervene. Verse 7, Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Here, Father, Son and Spirit work powerfully together, bringing judgment on Babel. I uh, watched a a video a few days ago of um, the footballer Jude Bellingham where he was um, with his sort of Real Madrid uh, teammates and uh, they were having sort of these competitions and with these sort of mini games. But as this was the Real Madrid YouTube channel, uh, they were mainly speaking in Spanish and it was obvious he couldn't understand most of what was being said. Now, just imagine how hard it would be for those builders to keep building when they couldn't understand each other. And how hard would it be to keep scheming when everyone's speaking a different language? You see, this is God's powerful judgment against defiant humanity. And yet, I think there's also mercy here as well. Because for in this confusing, the people, God diffuses the bomb that is man's potential of corporate collective sin. He disarms that bomb as he confuses their language. Now, the result of this confusion is that they stop building. It's not fully built. And they are scattered. There's more irony again. The people make every attempt not to be scattered or to go over the whole earth, but their defined actions ultimately cause their scattering. 
And I think this is a story that is initially grave, but sort of ends up kind of absurd and comical. And you can kind of imagine the Israelites laughing at the end, knowing the word Babel in the Hebrew means confused. Let's hear the story of the fortress of confusion. And it just goes to show, despite humanity's defiance, God accomplishes his sovereign plan. Nowhere uh, captures this better than at the end of Genesis, where we might call it the sort of series finale. Uh, Joseph is with his brothers. Uh, They seek reconciliation with him after the defiant actions that they have done towards God and him. And Joseph responds with these words in Genesis 50, verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this takes us straight to the death of our Lord Jesus. For despite the defiance of Judas who betrayed him, despite the defiance of the Jewish authorities who arrested him, despite the defiance of the crowds who mocked him, despite the defiance of the Romans who executed him, God intended the cross for good to accomplish his sovereign plan and the saving of many lives. Now, in the wake of Babel, our passage moves forward to focus on a family. And we're taken along a special line from Shem, the son of Noah, all the way to Abraham, who becomes Abraham. And by God... Uh, By grace, God chooses to work his plan through Abraham. And this comes in the form of promises that will bless humanity's future. Uh, This takes us to our second but much shorter point. God's promises bless humanity's future. If you can, do please turn to chapter 12 as we look from verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, we could kind of say... um, that the calling of Abraham is like episode one of season two of Genesis, if we want to keep that sort of thing going along. It's exciting new beginnings and hope for the future. Uh, And there are three distinct promises given to Abraham. The promise of a land, the promise of a nation, and the promise of a blessing. For these promises to be fulfilled, Abraham is commanded by God to go. Uh, Geographically, that is going back west. And spiritually, as we were thinking earlier, that's heading back towards God's presence. Here we're moving in a more positive direction as we begin to see a closer relationship between God and with those in whom his favour rests. 
Now, the promises themselves signify several important things. The land that was promised to Abraham was Canaan, and this would become Israel. It was probably a bit of a backwater at this, at this point, a contrast to vibrant Mesopotamia. But Abraham is called to leave that life behind, going from his country, his people and family. Now that takes a bit of risk. To leave a familiar and comfortable life to one that is unknown. But we see from verse 4 in chapter 12 that Abraham went. He follows God's command. In verse 2, God promises he will become a great nation. This will become the people of Israel. But initially it begins from a family. And what's incredible is that Abraham's wife, Sarah, was unable to conceive. We're told that in chapter 11, verse 30. And yet, Abraham trusted God to provide. And the final promise is one of blessing. God will make Abraham's name great And this is a direct contrast to Babel, who wanted to make a name for themselves. It's not the achievements of man that make a name great. It's what God has done for them. See, the Lord promises he will bless Abraham, and that Abraham will be a blessing even to all the peoples of the earth. Now, at this stage, the, the promises are rather vague, And this is because they're not actually fulfilled in Abraham's life. Not fully, anyway. You see, these are promises that bless humanity's future. All the way from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham and beyond, we have this very special family line, a line of promise. And as we move along it through Israel's history, we see a clearer picture of what these promises mean. And ultimately, they point us to the Lord Jesus. He fulfills these promises. You see, Jesus is God's promised saviour. And it is the true blessing of Abraham. He is the true blessing of Abraham. For through his perfect righteousness, he gives right standing before God. We are justified. And unlike Babel, who trusted in themselves, Abraham trusted in the promise of Christ, in the form that was revealed to him. And because he relied on faith, he was made righteous by faith. And Abraham was therefore the father of everyone who believes. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 9, it says this, Those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. You see, the blessing believers receive with Abraham is not the blessing of a sort of fantastic wealth, prosperity and power. The blessing is something far more precious. It is the blessing of right standing with God. And this then has eternal significance for us. We do not need to fear judgment on that final day when the Lord Jesus returns. For the blessing of the righteous 
we receive by faith means our future is secure. And so this passage that we've been looking at, it encourages us not to live in defiance of God, constantly living under the fear of judgment and threat of judgment. We're to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. For when he comes again, we will stand before him along with our father Abraham and we will be declared righteous because we have lived by faith. Let me close in prayer. Our Father, we are truly sorry for the ways in which we have defied your good, sovereign word, your sovereign rule. Forgive us, we pray, Lord. And we ask also you would forgive us when we have perhaps idolised the achievements of mankind and not recognised of your part, of the things that you have done. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God who sent your Son for us, that through him we might be made righteous through his perfect, spotless righteousness. We thank you for Jesus. May we give thanks to him and to you for all that you have given us. And may we look forward to that day when we see him again and we stand in glory with our father Abraham. So we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.